going to the quagmire today. In fact, I'm headed there right now. It is a dismal, murky place. It's not too far from here, though. find myself going there quite often. I guess you could say it's a bit of a retreat for me. You see, on dry ground, I stumble too much. I make mistakes. I skin my knees. I fall flat on my face. But in the quagmire, I just... I just mush around. There's mud, plenty of bugs, stagnant water and other soggy things, so I guess you could say it suits my mood. I'm going to the quagmire today. What? What kind of question is that? It's not a matter of like or dislike. It's just that I, I belong there, okay? With all the other slimy, slitherly creatures on the low end of the evolutionary scale. Nothing matters in the quagmire. I don't have to try in the quagmire. I don't have to fail. I'm definitely going to the quagmire. Yes. I remember. Not long ago, I got stuck in the quagmire. I was up to my neck in ooze until you came along. You rescued me. You set me on my own two feet. You led me on an expedition. I walked with you. You showed me all new possibilities, new ideas, and I followed you willingly. But, but then you had to go and challenge me. You called me to the high places, and I turned back. I turned back. Those inclines are steep. In the quagmire, the, the force of gravity, it's, it's much more friendly. I don't fall there. I just sink slowly down. But sinking is less painful than falling. Yes, I am sure of that. I'm not sure anything. But I am going to the quagmire. I don't care anymore. What am I saying? I, of course I care. I care. I hate the quagmire. but I'm such a failure. Just don't measure up. I can't measure up. So why do you even bother with me? 
I'm not even worthy of your patience. Do you know what your problem is? Your problem is that you love me too much. No, that's, that's not it, is it? The problem is that I don't trust you enough. I just can't get it into my head that you love me no matter what. I don't know. Maybe, uh, maybe I won't go to the quagmire today. Maybe I'll try again. Maybe I'll begin to climb one of those mountains instead. No, I, I won't go today. I won't go to the quagmire. But God, I need your hand to help me. So please, help me. Please. Let's pray together. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Father, there's so much of life that's just like what we've experienced this morning already. High highs and great celebration and incredibly deep lows and struggle. And we wrestle and we fight and we argue with you even about your love. God, it is my prayer today and I ask you please open our hearts, open our eyes to understand that you have so much more for us. That you love us more than we can possibly comprehend. And help us to leave here today understanding your delight, your delight in us. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Lots of us, I could probably say all of us at one point or another, have found ourselves in that place, the quagmire, that place that's kind of dark and dismal and ugly, and, and yet we go there because part of us feels like that's the safe place. I, at least I won't fall there. It's kind of ugly, and, and, and I'll get stuck maybe, but I won't skim my knees. Or maybe we go there because that's what we think we deserve, so many of us think that's the best we can get out of life because we've messed up, we've failed, we've done too many stupid things. We look at our past, we look at our present, we just go, man, that's where I deserve to be. But the truth is God has so much more for us, so much more for us. Last week, I talked about how when we understand the love of God, it affects everything about everything. And if you missed last week, I want to encourage you to go online and listen to it or pick up the CD at the information table because it was foundational for us to understand that when we get when we understand, when we comprehend the love of God for us, it doesn't just change us a little bit. In fact, to the degree that we get it, to the dimension that we understand it, it changes everything. It changes our lives. It radically alters the course of our lives. We need to understand his love. Today has been my hope, and even as I just prayed, that you'll learn to see yourself the way God sees you. And that is not as easy as it is to, to say. It's, it, it's much more difficult to experience than it is to just kind of talk about. 
But my prayer for you is that you will leave here today seeing yourself the way God sees you and that you'll learn to trust in his incredible and amazing love for you. Years ago, I pastored a church a long time ago now in Portland, Oregon. And we met in a Christian school cafeteria. It wasn't that big a church. And, and so I pretty much knew everybody who came in or somebody new came in. I, they stood out a little bit. And this guy, at the beginning of my message, uh, would, would come in and sit in the very back, and then while I was praying at the end of the service, he'd slip out. And he did that for weeks, in fact, a couple of months. He, he'd never got there early, never came during the worship, the singing part of the service. He'd always show up just as I was getting ready to talk, and as I'm praying, bowing my head, boom, he'd be out of there and scoot out as quick as possible. Well, I decided that I want to, wanted to meet this guy, wanted to find out what was going on and just tell him I'm glad he was here and welcome him. So I told our worship guy, his name was Glenn. I said, Glenn, I want you to close the service today. I'm going to bolt out the side door, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to track this guy down. I'm going to find him in the parking lot. And I didn't want to go and scare him, but I, thought, I just wanted to go and say, hey, dude, I'm just, you know, and, and so I did. Glenn's praying. I cut out the side door. I get to the parking lot. Sure enough, this guy, I come find his name's Arnie, is right at his door, and I startled him. I scared him to death. Hey, what? And I said, I just wanted to introduce myself and say, I'm glad you, I saw you've been coming for the last couple of months. He said, yeah, I, I really like it. And I said, man, I'm just really glad you're here. And that was pretty much the extent of it. Weeks turned into a couple of months, and he kept coming back, but he started coming a little earlier and staying a little longer, which was great. One day, end of our service, as I always do here, I gave an invitation for people to begin their life as a Christ follower, and Arnie gave his life to Jesus that day, and it was awesome. I mean, he came up to me afterwards, tears streaming down his face, and said, I'm in today. I, I gave my life to Jesus today. And I said, Arnie, I'm so glad. I said, Let's, can I get together? I would love to hear your story. Now, I say that to people a lot because I love to hear their stories. I want to hear his journey and how he ended up at the church we were at and, and what was going on in his life. And the minute I said, Arnie, I want to hear your story, you could just see this look of terror slash shame come over his face. He was terrified. And he said, well, I said, no, really, it'd be okay. Just let's get together. Maybe how about Wednesday? Okay. Well, Wednesday afternoon, it was Tuesday or Wednesday, but he showed up in my office, and, and uh, I said, let, let, let me just hear what's going on in your life. Tell me how you got here, what God's doing. And he wouldn't make eye contact with me. He started shaking his head, and he said, I, I don't know. I said, Arnie, really, it's okay. And I put my hand on his knee. I was just sitting next to him. I said, Arnie, it's okay. I said, and I said these words to him. There is nothing that you can tell me that's going to change my love for you or God's love for you. And at that point, he started to weep and shake his head and said, you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've done. You, you wouldn't say that if you know, knew what my story. I said, man, I, that, I want to hear your story, and I promise you, nothing you say will change my love or God's love for you. Well, he opened up, and he told me a story that was quite tragic, a story that involved uh, going to prison because he was a pedophile. He had committed a heinous act of sin against a, a, a teenage young girl and went to prison. In fact, 10 years he'd spent in prison and had just gotten out a few months before he started showing up at our church in Portland. And, and he, again, told me everything, just kind of laid it all out there. And when he got done, I had the privilege, the pleasure, the joy of being able to look him in the face and say, Arnie, God's forgiven you. And I love you. And he loves you too. What's hard for us, and it is. It's hard for us to wrap our head around that kind of love. It's hard for us to understand that love that seems beyond reason. The minute I said the fact that he was a pedophile, a percentage of you, I won't guess how many, but some of you thought, man, I wouldn't want that guy in my church. 
And, and we do. We, we, immediately, we have certain sins that we categorize as the big ones and the really bad ones, and they are really bad, and, but all our sins are, by the way. But we, we tend to look at that and go, ah, you know, just maybe God loves you, but I don't. And it's hard to wrap our head around the love of God for somebody like that. But that's precisely the kind of love that he has, not only for my friend Arnie, but for you and for me. I want to take a look at a couple of truths about this love today. And again, if you get it, it'll change your heart. It'll change your life. And here's the first one, number one, if you're taking notes today. God doesn't just tolerate you. He celebrates you. God doesn't just tolerate us. He celebrates us. In other words, God doesn't just endure you. He is endeared to you. You are, in fact, the apple of his eye. God delights in you. Now, he doesn't delight in everything we do. He doesn't tolerate everything we do, but he doesn't just tolerate you. He delights in you. He finds great joy in you. God doesn't put up with you like we sometimes put up with a screaming baby or with a neighbor's dog barking, don't even get me started <laughs> all night long. God doesn't just put up with us like we would put up with somebody that's kind of rubbing us the wrong way. God delights in us. We are, in fact, the apple of his eye. David wrote this in Psalm 17, 68. Does I call on you, my God, for you will answer me. Turn your ear to me and hear my prayer. Show me the wonders of your great love. Love that phrase. Show me the wonders, God. The amazing fact, the truth, the incredible depth and breadth and incredible love that you have for me. Show me the wonders of your great love. You who save by your right hand those who take refuge in you from their foes. And in verse 8, keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Now, I want you to notice here that David didn't say, make me the apple of your eye. He said, God, I hope I can perform well enough. I hope I can get the, my act together well enough. I hope I can do enough to somehow earn the position of being the apple of your eye. That's not what he says. David says, keep me as the apple of your eye. That phrase in the Hebrew, it's really a cool phrase. and could be literally translated, keep me as the little man of your eye, or little person of your eye. And it, the, the idea, the word picture here is that when you look at someone, you can sometimes see the, your reflection in the pupil of their eyes. As they're looking at you, you can see yourself. In fact, I've got a great picture. Isn't that cool? Now I'm sure that's been photoshopped. And I'm pretty sure that's a woman. Um, otherwise, the guy needs some help with his mascara. But anyhow, it's, it's, a, it, it's a great picture. And I love it because it illustrates what I'm talking about here. Keep me as the apple of your eye. As that little man or woman in your eye. What it means here is that God has his eye on you and that he delights in you. That's the phrase. That's what it means. Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 62, he said uh, that as a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so the Father rejoices over us. So he rejoices over you. Now I know you think, well, that was written about Israel and those people and, and it doesn't apply to us. No, let me explain something. It shows us the nature of God. How many times did Israel, if you read the book, the story, Israel messed up over and over and over and over again. Unbelievable. As a nation, as people, they just blew it all the time. And yet God said, as a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, I rejoice over you. God delights in us. We are the apple of his eye. He delights in you. You may have heard that I have grandchildren. Um, if you've been around here, you know I tell grandkid stories now. And I have four living grandchildren, ranging in age from five and a half to about six months. And three little boys, and then my oldest is a, a granddaughter is Adele. 
And I love those kids. I, I mean, I adore them. And if you've got children, or you're an aunt or an uncle, or you're a you know, big brother, sister, you know what it's like to have wonderful kids in your life. I love my grandkids. I do. I just adore them. But here's a reality. Here's a little truth about my grandkids. Sometimes they are grumpy. They're teething. They need a change of their diapers. They are, didn't sleep well. They've got a cold. Something's going on, and they're grumpy. Sometimes my grandkids misbehave. I know it's a shock. The pastor's grandchildren don't always do everything right. They misbehave. They mess up. They, you tell them don't do that, and they do exactly the thing you told them not to do. Sometimes they are not very appreciative of the fact that I spoil them rotten. It's one of the great privileges I have of being a grandpa. Is, and I love, I love, but sometimes they just don't get it. They don't really appreciate the fact that I'm, I'm blessing and spoiling them. I gave a bite of my donut to my grandson in the hallway this morning, and he didn't say thank you. Sometimes my grandkids are grumpy, they misbehave, they're not very appreciative, but the fact is it doesn't change my love for them. I love them nonetheless. And I'm a human grandfather. I'm human. If only we could truly understand the love of God for us, this love beyond reason. In fact, I wonder how it might change the way we relate to God and to others if we really got it. How would it change the nature of your relationship with the Father? And I don't answer out loud, but man, you need to chew on this one. How would it change the nature of your relationship with God if you truly believed, understood and believed that he delights in you, that he takes great joy in you, that you are the apple of his eye? How would it change the relationship with other people if you understood the relationship you have with God? What unholy fear do you have of God that would be changed if you understood his love for you? And some of us have an unholy fear. We dread him. We are terrorized by the thought of drawing near to him. We sin, we bolt, we run as fast as we can away from God rather than to him because we're, we see God the way some of us saw our earthly fathers. He's got a stick or a big old leather belt ready to whoop us when we blow it. And for decades in my experience with God, that's the way I saw God. He's ticked off at me. I am, oh man, he's just looking for opportunity to smack me down. How would it change the nature of our relationship if we didn't fear him that way, if we didn't have that unholy terror of him? What insecurities might disappear in our lives if we truly believed that we are a delight to the Father? And how would this reality, understanding the reality of his love for us, change the way we worship, change the way that we serve God? You know, I mentioned that we're having a ministry fair and there's tables. And how would it change your perspective of serving God if you understood that you do it not to get something, but because you got it? Because he delights in you, and because he loves you, and because you are the joy of his heart, how would you respond to that? And in worship, in our, in our lives are to be a, a, an act of worship to God, not just the singing time we have in church. I hope you know that. But we always, when we gather together, we experience a time of collective worship, 10, 15, 20 minutes at least of, of singing praise and worship songs to God. And that's intended to be a time of, of honoring him and, and telling him how much we love him and reflecting on his goodness in our lives. And it's worship. But how would your understanding of the love of God for you change even your experience of worship with us here at East Point? I have a guy in our church. I have permission to tell the story, but I, I won't tell you who he is. But um, his story, I love it. For a long time, in fact, in our old auditorium, uh, for a long time, uh, this was his classic, traditional stance in worship. Right here it is. 
wouldn't sing, literally stood there with his arms crossed most of the time, unengaged, unimpressed, didn't want to do it, and I knew that. I mean, you know, you may be surprised at what I know about you and what I see and what I realize. And it, it didn't bother me. I just said, God, you know, he'll, somewhere along the line, the Lord will begin to win his heart and capture him, and, and he'll see what worship really is all about. I love the day. He came to me, and it was about, I don't know, four or five, six months ago. And he came to me and said, man, i got to tell you this story. He said, great, tell me. He said, I was at my kid's Christmas program. Now, not this last Christmas, but the Christmas before last. I'm at my, I think his kid's in first grade at that time, maybe second grade now. But I'm at my kid's Christmas program at his school, and I'm sitting there listening to this little choir sing, and here's what went through my mind. This sucks. They're horrible. This, they're, they're destroying my favorite Christmas songs. They cannot sing. They're, and then the worst part about it, he said, was his son, guess who was one of the loudest in the choir? Part of the reason why he doesn't like to sing is he doesn't think he can carry tune, that he doesn't have a voice. And so he's like, I don't want to make God suffer or the people around me suffer. And so that's part of the reason why he never really sang. Part of it is he didn't want to get emotional other things, but he just said, I didn't do, want to go there. And he's listening to his son singing at the top of his lungs, off key, these Christmas carols. And it was, it was, it was, and he said, yes, he said, it was glorious. It was awesome. And he said, and I'm sitting there thinking, and it dawns on me. And if this is not a God moment, I don't know what is. It dawns on him. Maybe that's, how, that, maybe that's how the Father God looks at me. Maybe he doesn't care that I can't carry a tune to save my life. Maybe it doesn't matter that I don't know all the words. Maybe it doesn't matter that I don't get it sometimes. Maybe it just is enough that I'm expressing my love to him. Listen to me. God doesn't just love you guys. He likes you. Most of us go, I know God loves me. He has to. He's God. God is love. God so loved the world. Hello. You know, we get that. We, we believe that. But we struggle with this reality. God might love me, but I don't think he really likes me, or at least not most of the time. But here's the truth. Listen to me. God not only loves you, he likes you. You're a delight to him. You put a smile on his face. You're the twinkle in his eye. You bring joy to the Father. He rejoices over you. But we struggle with that. And I can see it on some of your faces. Some of you are thinking, yeah, but. We wrestle with that. We struggle to embrace this truth and this reality because of a very simple fact. We know we're not worthy. We know we're not worthy of his unmerited love. We know that we are screw-ups who don't really deserve that kind of love from God, which takes me to point number two. Number two, God's love is not based on your performance, but on his accomplishment on the cross. God's love is not based on your performance, but completely and absolutely on his accomplishment, achievement on the cross of Christ. This one sentence probably deserves weeks of discussion. We could spend a long time looking at many different passages that teach this and share this from the scriptures. But what I want you to know today is that this means that God loves you, he values you, because of who you are in Christ. If you're in relationship with his son, it's because of what Jesus did. He values you. He appreciates you. You are, you are of great joy to him because you are in his son, in Christ. And because of what he has done on the cross, not because of what you've accomplished on your own. That's good news for all of us because we could never accomplish it on our own. And so God's love is not based on our performance, but rather it's all about the work that he did for us on the cross. It's not about what we can do. It's about what was done 
for us on the cross. One of the most consistent themes in the New Testament is that we are hopelessly lost. Now, I know some don't like to hear that. Some people go, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, I, don't, I think I'm pretty good. I live a pretty decent life. I'm, I'm, I haven't murdered anybody. I'm not a pedophile. I don't do stuff like that. And we don't understand that the truth is we are hopelessly lost. We are never going to get it done on our own. We're never going to get good enough. We think, well, I hope when I die that the scales kind of balance out, that I got more good than bad. Trust me, ain't going to work. You're not good enough. Not going to get there. doesn't happen in any of our lives. The Bible says our righteousness, whatever good we think we've got, is as filthy rags. And, and that's a pretty dis- disgusting statement made about, but true about us, that we can't ever get it done on our own. We're hopelessly lost in the need of a Savior. And that's consistently taught in the Scriptures. And I'm going to go to one passage in Titus chapter 3. And here's what Paul said in Titus 3, 3 to 5. At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. Yep, that would be me. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Man, does that describe the human condition or what? But look at verse 4. But when the kindness and love, the kindness and love, of God our Savior appeared. He saved us. Not because, look at it, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. When we are at our worst, when we are at our worst, it's Jesus who made it possible for us to be in relationship with God. And he saved us. And it wasn't because we finally figured it all out or got it done on our own. It's because of his righteousness and his goodness and his love. Occasionally I have a conversation with somebody, and usually it's a somewhat self-righteous religious person, to be honest with you. Well, they will say, well, doesn't God care about what we do? Are you saying I can do anything I want? It doesn't matter. I mean, that just, that sounds pretty liberal, and, you know, I don't know if I can buy that. And I go, no, I am not saying what you do doesn't matter. I'm not saying, though, God absolutely loves you. I'm not saying that, that, that he doesn't care about what you do. Of course he cares. As any loving father, key word there, loving father would care. He cares about it. And he, the Bible says, you can check it out on your own. Don't have time to go there today. But Hebrews chapter 12 says that God, because he loves us, he will discipline us and correct us and bring us into the image, mold us and shape us into the image of his son. He does it because he loves us, not because he's ticked off. Not, he doesn't discipline us because he's really mad. He does it for our good. Even his act of discipline is an act of his love. And so, of course, God cares about what we do. But here's what I want you to see. If you've heard anything I've said this morning, please hear this. Our love from him, our value to God, and our salvation in him is not because of what we can do, but because of what he has done. Our love from God, our value to him, and our salvation in Jesus Christ is not because of anything you can do on your own, but because of what he has done for us on the cross. You see, God understands us better than we understand ourselves. He really does. He knows that we mess up on a fairly consistent basis. In fact, you know, just let's be honest. How many of you in the last, eh, let's say, week have said something, thought something, or did something you shouldn't have done? Come on, raise your hand. No, we'll see you. Yeah, a couple of you not raising your hand, come see me afterwards. I want to. <laughs> God understands. And the, the thing is, if we could just get the fact that he gets us, then it's going to give us an awful lot of, of, of 
of release and joy in our relationship with him rather than tear. Psalm 103 says this, 13 and 14, the Lord is like a father. Let me insert here, a good father, not a bad father. He's like a father to his children, tender and compassionate to those who fear him. And this is the good fear. Those who stand in awe and reverence and amazed at him. God is tender and compassionate to those who fear him. Verse 14, I love this verse. For he knows how weak we are. He remembers that we are only dust. Flesh and blood, he gets us. I love the King James there. It says, God knows that we are only butt dust. A couple of you get it. Never mind. I love the fact that God gets us, that he knows us. He knows we're weak. He knows our condition. And yet, listen to me, he loves us nonetheless. He loves us nonetheless. His love is not based in our performance. And this is so huge. This is such a big deal for us. Because we live in a world where we are constantly, trust me, you, you know this, we are constantly judged and evaluated based on our aptitudes, our abilities, our skills, or lack thereof. Do good at work, get a good performance review, get a good raise. Get an A on that algebra test, you're smart. Fail and you're a loser. And I bring that up only because I barely passed algebra in high school. I mean, I had to bribe the teacher. I had a D minus. And the only way I got from F to D minus is because I bribed her to let me pass that class. And it was, it was horrible. And you know what? One of the things, by the way, in a side note here, and I know I'm going to push some teacher's buttons. Love me anyhow. They told me that you really need to know this stuff. They lied. Now, if you're in algebra, stay the course, finish the class. You might be an engineer someday, and it will matter. But for guys like me, all that A plus B equals whatever stuff doesn't matter. But I had such a hard time. I was a really good student. I got great grades. I had a high GPA, except for algebra. I never got it. My brain is like dead over here. Just never got it. And, I, and I, it was so hard for me because we, in our culture, put so much of our value on our abilities. Look pretty, which in our world means tall, skinny, and young. Then you're a value. You're popular. Walk around with a big zit on your nose, and you're a pariah. You're an outcast. Preach a great sermon. Entertain people. Don't ruffle their feathers too much, and maybe they'll like me and come back. We live in a world where we are constantly judged and evaluated. And that's why this is so hard for us to wrap our head around, because that's not the way God is. He loves you. He loves you. Now, let me quickly add this, because I know I'm few are very worried about this. I'm not encouraging lazy slothfulness, okay? Do not go home and become a slob and tell your wife or your kids or your parent, Kurt says it doesn't matter. I am not encouraging sin. I'm not saying your performance doesn't matter. I'm not saying just do whatever you want. And for those theologians in the room that are all worried about it, yes, the Bible does say that one day every man's works will be judged. I know that. As Christ followers, it means that God's going to determine whether our works were wood, hay, or stubble. I get all that. The problem is the why. Why are we doing what we're doing? Are we doing it to earn something from God? Are we doing it to try to appease an angry God? Is that our perspective? Is that what motivates us? And if so, then it breaks God's heart and it breaks my heart. The issue here is why do we perform? Are we trying to earn something we already have in him? Are we striving for God's love and acceptance when we already have it? Our love from him 
our value to him and our salvation in him is not because of what we can do, but because of what's been done for us on the cross. And when you get that, there's this amazing joy and freedom that comes into your life. When you understand that, that's when you're going to respond to Jesus with this amazing gratefulness and humbleness and love and joy. You say, God, I know I don't deserve this. I know I'm a screw-up. I know I've messed my life up. I know all the things I've done that disappointed people, let alone you. And I've disappointed myself, God. I know, I know, I know. But when you understand, God says, I love you. In fact, you are a delight to me. And I know we're going to work on those things, but never question my love for you. When you get that, it'll change your heart, change your life. I've got a dear friend who grew up in Catholic Church, baptized in the Catholic Church, was an altar boy in the Catholic Church, went to Catholic schools from the time he was kindergarten all the way through Gonzaga. And he wrestled with something that lots of Catholics do. This, this performance thing, this motivation by guilt thing, you know what I'm talking about? Now let me quickly add, I grew up in a very fundamental, traditional, legalistic, Protestant church that taught me the same thing. So I'm not picking on Catholics here. But we had this in common, and we, we, we would talk all the time about this guilt performance thing and how we, you know, why we would do what we do and how we would be motivated. And I was in, in my late 20s before I finally had this God moment, this encounter with God that radically changed my understanding of the Father. I saw Father God the way I saw my dad, which was not good. And then I began to understand God loves me, period. And when he, my friend, began to get that, it radically changed his life as well. He began to have this joy and this peace. You know how uneasy and stressful it is to walk around feeling like you're a failure all the time and that, you're, that God doesn't like you, that he's ticked off at you all the time? But he got it, that God loves him, and God delights in him. God knows our stuff. He sees the areas for us to grow in. Yes, 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 but that we are delighted in him. And when you get that, it will bring more joy to your life than you've ever experienced in any other way. You see, here's my conviction, and I'm going to wrap this up. But here's my conviction, guys. We as Christ followers ought to be the most joy-filled people on planet Earth. Because our joy is not based on circumstances. It's not based on money, possessions, stuff, cars, houses, whatever. Our joy is not based on our accomplishments, which, you know, we might be a hero one day and a goat the next. We might be, you know, everybody's, you know, favorite one day and the next day they're cursing the day you were born. And that's a fickle way to live in this world, and, and, it's, and, and, and people strive for stuff that we already have. That's why we ought to have more joy than anybody. If you understand that you put a smile on God's face, if you understand that he delights in you, if you understand that, you, that he rejoices over you, then what that fills you with is this sense of joy and relief and satisfaction that you cannot find anywhere else. And people ought to look at you and go, dude, I know you're a mess up. I know you just, you are an idiot. I, what's the deal? How can you have so much? They'll call it happiness. You call it joy. How can you be like that? And you'll have the privilege of being able to respond, well, it's not because of me. It's all because of him. It's because of him. It's because of what he has done for me. One of my favorite books, I'm going to read a quote and I'll be, I'll be done. It's a book called He Loves Me by Wayne Jacobson, S.E.N. Jacobson. Great book. And I want to read a quote from his book that really puts it well, and then I'm going to be done. 
He says, religion is keeping score. Now, we talk all the time around here about the difference between religion and relationship. And, and the reason we talk about the difference is because religion is all about trying to earn something we already have, trying to appease an angry God, trying to work our way into his favor. He says here, and I love it, religion is keeping score, striving for acceptance through our own performance, whether it be in our good works or in our ritualistic activities, even holy activities. Those things put the focus squarely on us and what we can do to be loved and accepted by God, thereby dooming us to failure, he writes. Because we can't get it done. We're not going to ever be able to do it enough. And then he adds this. He says, but by releasing us from the terrible burden of trying to earn his friendship and love, trying to earn it, God puts the focus right where he wanted it to be, on relationship with him. Bow your heads. Let me pray for you. Lord, I know that we uh, humans wrestle with acceptance and judgment. We wrestle, God, to believe that you really do not only love us, but that you like us. The enemy constantly is reminding us of all the things we've done, all the mistakes we've made. And so we, we get focused on our, our failures and our, 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 our mistakes rather than focus on the cross of Jesus. Lord, I'm grateful that your Holy Spirit's working in us to transform us into the image of your Son, that you're never going to give up on us, that you're going to keep molding and shaping us, but that you even do that out of love. And I'm so grateful, Lord, this morning that if we understand that it's love and that we are loved, that the response of our hearts, Lord, will be love to you. And I pray, Jesus, please put that into our world, put that into our understanding right now. For those that have been walking with you and yet striving and performance-driven, Lord, set them free from that today and let them experience the joy like they've never known before. For those, Lord, that are sitting here in this room right now or maybe watching online and they, they have thought they had to get their life all cleaned up. I got to stop this and that and get rid of this and that and then I'll come to God. Lord, would you show them right now that that's not the way it works, that they come to you with all their stuff all their brokenness, all their failure. They just come. And you love them, you accept them, and then you, by your Spirit, work in them to change and become the people that they need to be. And yet, God, you change us. And you invite us to come just as we are. I'm going to ask you to keep your head bowed and your eyes closed. Maybe you're here today, and that's you. And I want to pray a very simple prayer right now. And if you want to begin your life as a Christ follower, if you want to embrace the cross, the forgiveness, the free gift, listen, it is a free gift of salvation. You can never earn it. I know it seems too good to be true. It's God. And it's truth. And if you want to accept that free gift of his salvation, of his grace and his mercy in your life, and you're ready to cross that line of faith and begin your life as a Christ follower, then just make this simple prayer yours right now. As I pray it, you just say, yeah, God, that's me. That's my, those are my words. Make this prayer yours. Father, I need you. I need a Savior. I've tried to do life my way. And I see now that that's only a way that leads to death. And I want life. I want your life. God, I, I thought I had to clean myself up, and I realize now I can never get clean enough on my own. But that you paid the price for me, Jesus. I see that now. That what you did on that cross was you made it possible. You made a way possible for me where it was impossible before. And so I embrace the cross of Jesus. I accept that free gift 
grace and salvation. I thank you for your mercy and your love. Now that's you. Just in your own way, say, yeah, God, that, that prayer, man, that's me. That's what I need. That's what I want. The Bible says as you embrace him, he's already embraced you. You're, you're part of his family now. You're a child of God. Lord, for those making that decision right now, show them how much they're loved by you and what you want to do in and through them. And with the voice of the enemy and others, Lord, just shut that out of their heart and let them hear you and your words of affirmation and love right now for the choice they've made to follow you. Thank you, Jesus. We love you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together. Ushers are going to come where you take our offering. We're going to sing this last song. I love this song. And I, um, here's my hope. Don't just kind of walk through the motions here in this song, guys. Make this song a declaration of truth for you. Some of you for the first time today can sing this as truth for you. Ushers are going to pass the bag. We'll take our offering. Give because you love them. Put those uh, visitor cards in the bag as it comes by if you would. But let's worship as we give. And I'll come back and wrap it up. His love never fails. Never is a long time. It means never. It's always going to be there for you. Today, if you begin your life as a Christ follower, you're on that journey now with him. I want to encourage you to tell somebody, we want to walk with you. We want to help you. There's a back on the tables to the right of the doors. You walk out. There's a packet for new Christians. That's got a Bible, some material. Get you started. You walk with Jesus. Pick one of those up. But let us journey with you. But here's my prayer for all of you. Here's my hope for every one of us today. And we'll leave this place understanding that the Bible teaches that God's mercies are new every morning. He never runs out of his love and his mercy and his goodness for us. And that is brand new and fresh every day. And that you can leave here today knowing that the Father smiles over you, that he delights in you, that you're the, you're the apple of his eye. If you need prayer, prayer to me be down front. There's communion on both sides of the room. You can have that. And uh, again, check out the ministry tables. Please stop and find a place to get plugged in and to serve out of love for God. But go today, rejoice in the fact that he rejoices over you. God bless you guys. Thanks for coming today.